1 Corinthians chapter 6, we left off and verse 12. Lord, I just want to lift up your word this morning. We are um, treading on holy ground. We ask that your spirit would just permeate this room, permeate our minds, our hearts, and that our sin, Lord, would just be confessed to you and dealt with and cleansed and gone, Lord, as your word is just bringing up issues and issues not to rub our nose in it, but to bring us to freedom. Lord, we pray that we would be a free people, a free church. Lord, that we would no longer be held by the bondage of the way we used to live, the things we used to do, the things that uh, trapped us. And we need your grace in this, Lord. We need your grace to open our minds and our hearts, to mature us, to help us in our understanding. And so, Lord, as we open up these uh, precious passages of Scripture, we ask that you would... Speak to our hearts right where we are, right here in 2015 in Walla Walla. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. I have the right to do anything, verse 12, you say. <laughs> How many of you grew up, well, at least I did, when, when someone like wanted to go against what you were doing, you know, and they were giving you a hard time, you're all like, well, it's a free country. Anybody? <laughs> I do what I want. It's a free country. Yeah. Exactly. And so what, what was going on here is that Paul had taught this precious church the freedom they had in Jesus Christ, freedom from the bondage of the law, no longer to have to follow the Ten Commandments for righteousness. And we went, we went in the book of Galatians. That was great. In other words, keeping the law does not save anyone at all. And so the question is, well, do I become lawless? The answer is no. Now you're under a new law, the law of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ now lives within you, and He will bear uh, witness to what glorifies God and what does not glorify God. And so you have this tremendous liberty in, in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? That is great. I love that. Now, they would take that saying, it seems, and use it to justify things that are the exact opposite of what God just freed them from. They would say, hey, I have this freedom in Christ, and now I can go back and I can hang out with prostitutes, and I can do whatever sexual adventures I want, and I can have sex outside of marriage, and I can go ahead and, and, I can go, ahead and go crazy. I can do what I want. I have freedom. I have liberty. Christ has paid the debt. And there's this mentality within the culture of this just craziness. And so I have the right to do anything you say. And so Paul's going to be quoting them several times here. He says, I have, I have the right to do whatever you want. You say, but not everything is beneficial. Beneficial means, in, in the Greek here, it means it's good for others. Good for others. And that's one of the testings of our liberty. And there's a little, little saying that I learned uh, when I was younger in the Lord. And I still need to remind myself all, about it all the time. And my liberty, my freedom ends when someone else's stumbling begins. My liberty ends when someone else's 
stumbling begins. Why is that? It's my right. Well, we're no longer under just rights. We're no longer under the law. We're under the law of love, the Spirit of Christ. And so if I am doing something and partaking in something, going towards something that is going to cause someone else to stumble, no matter how weak they are in their faith, then I am to, in the Spirit of love and Christ, sacrifice that for the uh, betterment of others. And so there's so many uh, circumstances that that can apply within our lives. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, is what Paul says. That word master means be enslaved to. When, before we came to Christ, we were enslaved by our flesh, enslaved by desires, enslaved by passions. And so while we are free to uh, do many things in the Lord, not all things are beneficial. They're not the best for everybody else. They're not best for, uh, for me. And you can also become enslaved to them again. And that is not what the Lord would have with us. We are to be slaves of the Spirit. And so, uh, speaking with conviction in my own heart and in the lives of the church, are there things that we're enslaved to, things that we can't live without, things that we feel like we have to, um, I just got to have that cup of coffee, or I just got to do this, or I just got to have my medication, or I've just got to, are we enslaved to it? Yeah, I mean, food, whatever you want to do, I mean, you can just take it. And the idea is we're to be mastered by none, we're to be mastered by the Holy Spirit. So things are profitable, sure. But who, who has what? Who has hold over it? Are you mastering over it? Are you using it to glorify God and to benefit His life and the life of others? Or is that something that is taking mastery over you? You're becoming under the yoke of bondage again, the very thing from which Christ freed you from. And that's what the grace of God is, Romans 8 is that you no longer have to be enslaved. You no longer are enslaved by sin and by the flesh. You are now free in Christ not to, whereas before you came to Christ, you were not free. And so that is the power within you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that Jesus lives in you, that you now have power over everything. And so what happens with addictions? What happens with all these things? The Spirit of God power of God in your life to change you. Now, the carnal man cannot have victory over that. Sure, they can have, uh, they're just enslaved, but with, with the person with the Holy Spirit has now the, the, the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, the power of Christ living in them, and they can have victory in these areas. And Paul specifically is speaking to, I think, sexual sin here. But I will not be mastered by any. You say food is for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. And he goes, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. A common saying was, hey, in the culture, this is what they believed. Hey, uh, my stomach is made for food, and food's made for my stomach. If I have a desire, just meet it. And there was a common idea within that culture that the body was basically evil that the body was basically evil, so anything physical was evil, and anything spiritual was good. God's going to destroy the body. He's going to destroy the earth. So who cares what I do? And that's on one end of the spectrum. So this, this idea of teaching that I can do whatever I want, it's all going to be destroyed anyway. All, the only thing that happens is, is, is that my spirit is, is 
is right with God. And Jesus is the other way around. James teaches this. It says, well, if you're right with God in your spirit, it's going to play out in the flesh. It'll be crucified. You'll know them by their fruit. That's how you know. And so just because we have desires does not mean they need to be met. Just because you have a strong sex drive does not need to be, mean it needs to be met. Just because you're hungry doesn't mean you need to eat. You know what I'm saying? Right now, we can withhold things. We can stop. We don't have to be mastered by them. And boy, this is a message to me, our culture, our place and the time we live in. We live in incredible indulgence, incredible self-centeredness, incredible just whatever it is we want to meet. We just do it. And then we reap the whirlwind of it. We wonder what went wrong. Pretty interesting. We need the Spirit of God in our heart. We need the Spirit of God in our country, in our minds. But he says, you know, God will destroy them both. Well, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. That word sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, which is obviously where we get the word pornography, but it means everything outside of sex and marriage. That is not what God intended for the body. Did you know if you have a design, any of you created anything ever? How do you like it when that creation starts to function outside of what it was designed for? It's wrong. It's warped. It's ruined. It doesn't bring glory to you as the creator. And that's what happens when we begin to indulge in what God has clearly set up as parameters that within the confines of marriage is is where you're to have sex. One man, one woman for life before God. And he's saying that just because you have these desires as single people or whatever it might be does not mean that you're meant to go out and satisfy that desire. It actually has a place. It has a boundary. It has a time. It has something that God actually designed for it to have maximum pleasure, maximum capacity, maximum meaning and we're going to get into that a little bit further. What is the purpose of sex? But guess what? Newsflash. What is your body for? It's for the Lord. That is a wild concept. You can just underline that and start it. God gave me this body for what? For Him. For Him. Your body is for Him. And so what does that mean? I guess that means what we eat, what we do, what we say, where we go, what we put on, who we interact with, where we walk. It's for what? It's for Him. That's revolutionary. God created you and designed you for Him, for His glory. He's given you a soul and a spirit, and then He's given you this outer shell that actually does what your soul and spirit want to do pretty amazing. He's speaking here to this group of people that are saying, eh, I'll just do whatever I want and I can still go to church and I can still do this and that and this and everything's cool. He's saying, no, you've got it all wrong. One thing I love about the, the Bible is Jesus says, go and make disciples. He commands the disciples to go out and make disciples. And what is that? Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What does that imply? Teaching them to obey, that there's 
disobedience. There's not knowing what to do, not walking after the Lord. And so what's amazing is that people come to the Lord and it's like, okay, automatic instant perfection. Boom, come on. It's like, I have no idea what to do or how to walk in this life. Now, some people need to walk alongside them and encourage in their heart and say, now this is what glorifies the Lord, this is what doesn't. doesn't. This is what this verse means, this is what it doesn't. This is what God intended you for, this is what you've been doing. And the Spirit of God will testify in their heart and they're, and they're learning how to deny self and to let the Spirit of Christ grow within them. And if you feel stale in your walk with the Lord, if you feel disillusioned on stuff, let me tell you that that process has been stunted. That process has been stunted. You said no at one point, or you won't give over, or there's someone who hasn't come alongside you and helped you, and to, and to pray to that matter. Lord, teach me. Lord, show me how to be a disciple. Show me how to follow you. What's going on with this area of my life? And let me tell you, it's that you, you have victory in one area, and all of a sudden the Lord opens up three more doors of things he wants to work on. Amen? Yeah, and people who have walking in the Lord with you for a, for a longer period of time and look at you and go, okay, I can see they're ready for that. And it's amazing, and people are looking at them who've been walking longer with the Lord than them and going, okay, they're ready for that. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful experience to be discipled in the Lord and disciple others. It's great. And so this idea of discipleship, that they have to be, learn how to do this, and so Paul is teaching this, what's your body for? Now that you're in Christ, what do, you, what do you exist for to bring glory to God? Oh, well, how does that work? And he starts talking about it more. He says, by, the, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us also. You think it's going to be annihilated. Well, God has plans for your body. He's going to raise you up again. You are meant for the Lord. Just as Jesus died and rose again, you will die and rise again. That is, it's, you're intimately connected with the Lord. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, and by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and will raise us also. Do you not know, don't you know, that your bodies are members of Christ himself, your instruments of Christ himself? You were you are united with him. When we gave our hearts to the Lord Jesus, we became Married to him is the idea, spiritually. We became one with him in the spirit. And now are we to go take as members of Christ, as instruments of Christ, as being united with Christ, and go take that relationship and go unite it with prostitutes? Go look at pornography? Go have, do all the stuff? Because what he's getting at is when you do that, you're dragging Christ into every single one of those circumstances. He's there with you because you're one with him. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Do you know what happens when people have sex? They become one. The two become one flesh, and he, and he says it right here. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Design, folks. God created men, woman, to come together, have sex, and what happens? 
They become one. And is that just physical? Yes, on a fleshly plane. But what happens? Something deeper and more spiritual happens within them. They connect on a soul level. And God designed it that way. One man, one woman, for their whole life, deep intimacy, naked, unashamed, not worrying about anybody else, those two. That's what he designed it for. Now, why would he do that? Why would he set parameters on that? Keep reading. The two will become flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one in him with with him in spirit. So actually, deep intimacy between a husband and wife, as we read later in Ephesians, is a picture of Christ and his bride. Christ and his bride. John chapter, was it 17, I think? I can't really remember exactly. I think it's 17. Paul will often use pictures of physical things to represent something that's happening spiritually. Are they the same thing? Not at all. But he's using something physical to represent something spiritual. Just as the temple in the Old Testament was a picture of, of heaven and the throne room of God and Jesus and the lambs were a picture of Jesus Christ and the blood he sacrificed is a picture of the lambs, well, the other way around, the lamb's blood was a picture of Jesus' blood, all these types. So man, one man, one woman coming together is a picture of Christ in the church. Does the bride leave the husband? Never. Does the husband leave the bride and forsake her for anyone else? Never. One man, one woman, deep intimacy, and this is the picture Christ wants to have with you. Deep intimacy. We're not talking about sex. We're talking about soul, spirit, not flesh. We're talking about deep within your innermost being who you are, totally abandoned to him, naked, unashamed in your spirit, your soul. This is, I know this is church, but do you understand what we're talking about here? And that is why anything outside of marriage is idolatry. God designed it. He set it up. Jesus, he doesn't have union with harlots. He doesn't have one-night stands. He doesn't not commit to someone. Do you understand? He's all in. You're committed to him. He's committed to you. It's life. It's forever. And so this is the picture Paul is talking about. Where did I say we're going? John 17. High priestly prayer. John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, not just the disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, this is spirit, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me and I've given the glory that you gave me that we be as one as we are one. Do you notice the oneness there? One in spirit is what he's talking about. Deep, deep picture. And this is what he's getting at here. Whoever is united to the Lord is, is one with him in spirit. And so what's the answer, Corinth? Flee from sexual immorality. Do you reform it? 
Do you play around with it? Do you, you run, run away. Timothy says, flee lustful, uh, youthful lusts. He's talking to Timothy, one of his young pastors. First Corinthians is, is speaking to a church that's struggling heavily. The culture around it has temple prostitutes coming from uh, the temple of, gosh, it's Herodites. I can't remember exactly who it was, but goddess of sensual pleasures and all that stuff. A thousand prostitutes coming down every single night, permeating the city. Just rampant craziness. And a church that was engaging in some of this stuff and thinking it was cool. People's mother-in-laws sleeping with son-in-laws. What in the world's going on? I know. Stuff that the world looks at and goes, ugh, that's horrible. And so God's dealing with the heart of his church. Paul is teaching them, reshaping their minds about sexuality. What's it for? What's the picture of it? What is it made for? You're either going to use it by design or you're not. You're either going to give glory to God or you're not. Do you realize that? And he's going to actually talk a little bit more about this. I better stop. But the two will become one flesh, flee from sexual immorality, run away, be a, be a Joseph who was totally... Uh, enticed by Potiphar's wife. And what did he do? He ran away naked when she tried to grab his clothes and stuff. He had his robe on. She tried to, you know, try to basically rape him. It's what happened. And and she grabbed his clothes and he just ran away. Said, how could I do this wicked thing in the sight of God? You flee. You run. You don't play around with it. This is the teaching here. And he goes, all other sins sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually against their own, uh, sins uh, sexually is against their own body. It messes with the innermost being, that connection with the Spirit, I believe this is what he's talking about. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Now, you have to be a Jew to kind of picture this, but the temple was there in, in the New Testament, and you had the outer courts, the outside of the court of the Gentiles, where all the non- Jewish people could kind of go around, but then as you got closer to the middle, you had the inner courts where the priests would hang out, sacrifices would be made, and then you'd go up into the temple, and actually as you in- entered the temple, there would be showbread on one side, there'd be bread, and there'd be a lampstand with oil and all that stuff, all pictures, Jesus, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. As you walk inside, you go further, and there's this place called the Holy of Holy, this veil that was really thick, and no one could go into this inner sanctuary, this room that held the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God except for a priest, one time a year, and he couldn't go in there without blood, and they would tie something around his leg because chances are, if he wasn't clean when he went into that place, he would drop dead, and they'd have to pull him out. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that word temple is that room. It's not the outside. You are that room. Do you not realize that God's Holy Spirit indwells with your body is the Holy Spirit? His Spirit has come and live, lives within you? Do you realize how powerful that is? How holy that is? How amazing? And we don't. And that's the scary thing. And Paul's going, ah, We've got to wake up to this fact that if you've called out to Jesus and he's forgiven you your sins, guess what? 
put on the wedding ring. He's not divorcing you. He lives inside your heart. He's there. He fills you. You're the temple. Now before, in chapter 3, verse 19, he said, you're all the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he was speaking about that. He's talking about the church. The very church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Church not meaning building, meaning gathering of people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But then now he's narrowing it down to you as an individual are possessed with that. You're possessed with this Holy Spirit. That's powerful stuff. (laughs) He's in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Because you've been bought with a price, because His Spirit dwells in you, because you're not your own, Honor God with your bodies. Your bodies are made for the Lord. And that can take application in a bazillion different ways, can't it? So just let the Spirit speak to you on that. Amen? No laws, just ask Him about everything. Say, does this glorify you, Lord? What I'm eating, what I'm doing, how I'm living. And forget culture. Go to the Word. Pray and ask. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right. Verse in chapter 7. He goes, now for the matters you wrote about. What does that tell us? They had questions. They had questions, did they not? Any of you have questions? All the time. And it's healthy to ask questions. It's healthy if you don't know to ask questions. What scares me is when I'm in a room and I'll ask a question and everybody's just like, I mean, do you have any questions? Everybody's like, no, I know everything. I'm good. I'm like, really? I have like tons right now I could be asking. I mean, that's what I love about kids. That's what I love about little kids. They're full of questions. Amen? And that's what we're to be like little kids, asking questions. And so he goes on. He's answering. And, he, and, and so he's responding to their questions. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now he's going to come up with an ideal here, and then he's going to talk about some, a concession. Living in the age and the time that we're in with, with the things that are going on in Corinth, and what's going on, it's better to be single, is what he's getting at. Time is short, he's going to talk about. I wish you all were like me, because when you get married, you have lots of trouble. Lots of trouble. Are there not lots? Everybody's chuckling right now, right? Raise of hand. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I I just want to, if you didn't have trouble, you now have it. (laughs) No, but you're going to have trouble. He's going to talk about that, but it says it's ideal. It's, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual morality, what we just talked about, is occurring, here's the answer. Each man should have sexual relations with what? His own wife. And each woman should have with her own husband. Parameters that the Lord puts on it. Sex in marriage is blessed, and that is where it should stay between one man, one woman. That is it. Amen? That's what it says. It says, because sexual morality is occurring and doing, uh, having sex outside of marriage is not God's design, it will bring the wrath of God upon you. You will not hear in the kingdom of God. It is good for you to get married, have a wife, and you have to keep 
sex within that marriage. The husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Now, again, there's this idea that the body was bad, and so you had two extremes within the church. One said that I can do anything because who cares? The body's getting burned. And another one says that I want to engage in any physical things because the body is bad. And so there are people probably coming to the Lord saying, eh, I don't need to have sex with my spouse anymore. And what does Paul teach is the husband should fulfill his marital duties. He's talking about sex to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Notice the word, she does not have authority over her body and she, does, and she has to yield to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. How do you like that verse? Do you know sex is not a weapon? It's a gift. It's a blessing. You are stewards. You're not to deprive one another in marriage of that. Do you know that I, I run into that where people will, uh, well, you know, tell you then this is going to happen. Now I realize there are, Paul's not talking about every single circumstance happening. Someone goes out, they're out you know, putting drugs in their veins, they go get hep C, and, you know, I mean, of course, you know, there's going to be a, no, I'm sorry, that's not happening. Not talking about things of abuse and things that are weird. This is talking about normal marriage, okay? This is what we're talking about right now. So just all the hypotheticals, we can talk about those later. Those take wisdom from the Spirit. Well, what we're talking about is just normal marriage. You're to be able to satisfy each other in marriage. Now, what does that mean? Someone's probably going to have more of a sex drive than the other, aren't they? So the word yield is in there. And this is where it falls apart. When the husband is not dying in loving his wife as Christ died for the church, and the the wife is not submitting as the bride does uh, to, to the Lord, it all falls apart. It does, and this touches really deeply. Humans are designed by God for this intimacy. And what will happen is if one spouse denies the other uh, that situation, the enemy will come in and he will tempt and he will draw them out in some other way. That will happen. So wives, you think you're being great in, in denying these things, and you're going to teach them a lesson, all that stuff. Husbands, you think you're going to be great in teaching a lesson to your wives to not do that. Be aware. You've created an opportunity for the enemy to come in and ransack your marriage and to draw people off. That's a hard teaching, I know, but this is what Paul's getting at. Is that it's to be a loving, mutual relationship. Now, obviously, you need to talk through times and all that type of stuff. I'm not, again, we're speaking in generalities. You're not to have a heart that deprives the other person is what he's talking about. Talking to married couples only. The rest of you flee. That's what he's talking about. Verse 5, don't deprive each other. Or it or except for perhaps, and Paul's trying to think of some things, except for some mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. You know, 
Spiritual excuses aren't even good excuses for this. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't mess with this. This is what God brought you together for, part of, to be deeply intimate with one another. Don't deny each other that. And this also forces you to talk through stuff, doesn't it? But you can separate for a time of prayer, but not very long, he says. And notice it has to be mutual consent. One doesn't have authority over the other in that situation. The husband doesn't have, a, have authority of his own body. The wife does, and the other way around. So do not deprive each other, except perhaps you guys need to pray. Some things are happening in your family, and you're like, you know what? We need to take a, a week and say, God, or whatever time, and just say, Lord, we, our kids are going berserk. We're just going to focus on you for a week. We're going to fast. We're going to pray or whatever time frame. And you just say, you know what? We're, we're focused on you. But what does he say right after that? He says, don't deprive each other, but hey, pray. But then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's a reality. God set us up naturally to have sex. There's strong sex drives. What is it like? Air, food, sex is right up there. Those three within, I mean, it, it's psychologists have kind of, or psychiatrists, whatever, they, they've kind of discovered human nature, a little bit about it. Air, food, you know, sex, those types, protection, that type of stuff is all up there in, in, in deep human psyche. Now I realize that there's, you know, there's, you know, you're a guy and you're talking about this and you're telling women to have sex. Listen, just read the word. Read it and go struggle with the Lord. Amen? Because it all comes down to a heart issue. If this isn't happening in marriage, and I'm, we're not talking about physical problems within the marriage where there's, where there's situations where people are physically disabled. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about normal, functioning husband, wife. Something's going on there. Don't deprive each other. And he goes, and then uh, come together so Satan won't uh, tempt you because of lack of self-control. And I say this as a concession, not as a command. And, and the next thing he's saying, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul is single, but each of you has your own gift from God. Notice it's a gift to be single. One has this gift and the other has that. And so Paul says the ideal is to be single, to be celibate, and to be fully devoted to the Lord in this time, this age. That's what Paul teaches. And those of you who are saying that's lunacy, you don't have that gift. <laughs> Get married to a godly person and stay together. Amen? That's what he's saying. But you have that gift of being single if, if you've prayed about it and God has not delivered and that's in the, and, and all this type of stuff, and I'm not talking about the struggle and wanting to be married, that's, I think it's within many people's hearts, but Paul probably was married at one time because if you had to be a part of the Sanhedrin, which is he most likely was, uh, the religious council, and you had to have a wife, there's a whole bunch of other things there because the command in Genesis to go be fruitful and multiply and... They figure that married people probably are a little bit more merciful in judging circumstances, whatever. And I mean, there's just a lot of history there. But most likely, he was what? He probably either his wife left him or she died. So, but he's single. Paul the Apostle. When he came to the Lord, his wife probably took off, said forget it, or she died. 
whatever the situation was. But he says, I wish that you were I was, uh, as I was. Now, why is that? Why would Paul say that? We're going to get into this. In just a, in just a minute, we're going to finish up here in ten, within 10 minutes. And I say this is a concession. I wish you as I, as I were, but if you don't have the gift, then, then don't even try. Verse 8, now to the unmarried and to the widows. This could be widower and widow. Or it could just be to the pre- the single person in the widow. But I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they can't control themselves, this is speaking sexually, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That word burn is the word pyro. So you get the idea. <laughs> Don't pyro. Get married to a godly person. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. And so he's actually quoting direct quotes from Jesus. A wife must not separate from her husband. A wife must not separate from her husband. And now notice, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to the husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. God's design for two people is to never be divorced. That is God's perfect design. Never divorce. And notice he says, but if you do, why does he say, but if you do? Because we live in a world where people get divorced. And it happens in the church, and it happens all the time. But that is not God's intent. Just as having sex outside of marriage is God's not, it's not his design. But what happens when people fail? I've done messages on this, and you, I'm not going to get into it too deeply at this moment. But flip over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. This is important stuff in training our kids because we're going to have a whole different worldview. We do have a whole different worldview that's being taught by our culture. Purpose of sex, purpose of, of marriage. Verse, uh, Matthew 5, verse 31, it, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there's one of Jesus' teachings. You can also read in Luke 16, 18, and then in Mark. And so you can go ahead and talk about that. basically says what God puts together, man shall not separate. When you get married, you become one flesh with someone. In the eyes of God, no matter what piece of paper you're throwing back and forth, what happens in the courts, in the eyes of God's court, you're married. And you go out and you start hooking up with someone else, you're committing adultery or they are committing adultery. And God makes it very clear, except for uh, adultery, the situation of adultery, that, that that's not acceptable. And that leads, a, that, that's a whole bunch of other questions that I don't, not going to get into right now, but I'm free to talk after service or whenever you want. Verse 12, to the rest I say, and not I, but the Lord, I'm sorry, I, not the Lord, if, if any brother has a wife, who is not a believer. So what happens when you come to the Lord and you've got married to someone who's not, not a believer? And she is willing to live with him. That's a big willing. Yeah, my gosh, you're a Jesus freak, but I guess I'll hang out with you. He must, what? Not divorce her. You stay with that person. Now, why is that? And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. What does that word sanctify mean? Set apart, cleansed. Do you know that most of you, how many of you who are both married in the Lord now, you're both born Christians, receive the Lord at the same time? Yeah, you too, awesome. I know that one. How many of you, it was separate times when you were married? When you were married? That's quite often how it happens. One person will come to the Lord, their life is changed, and the person next to them is going, what in the world just happened to you? And they're watching. And Paul is saying, if you're living for personal happiness... And if you're living for yourself, you're going to get divorced. But if you're living for the kingdom, if you're living so that this person, so your kids might see Christ in this difficult darkness, you will stay with them and you will be salt and light. So you're to stay. That's a hard teaching. Especially when you are living in a place and you are being intimate with someone who has, does not, no longer has the same values with you, has a totally world system, likes to do different things than you do. You're going to Bible studies. You're filled with the Spirit. Darkness and light, it's, it's a struggle. But what does Paul say? Be a witness. Be a witness. Now he, he puts on some more parameters. But if the unbeliever, what happens? Verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves. I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Uh, yeah, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What does that mean, unclean? In other words, your kids aren't going to have that savoring, that salt and light influence. Staying in a marriage for your kids. What a novel concept. Roughing it out for someone else. Going through pain and anguish for the betterment of someone else and not your own self and not your own satisfaction. Wow how we've lost that. We've lost that. Paul's saying, hey, you know, you have a sanctifying influence upon your kids. They would have no idea what it's like to see the Lord apart from you if you left. When they look at two parents and how they live and what they do, eventually they're going to grow up and they're going to see what happened. And the world has its pull and it has its influence, but so does the Spirit of God. So stay true. Continue to shine. Continue to love. Continue in the Lord. Let him witness through you difficult, hard circumstances. But you stay there. And he goes, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. And this is where he kind of has his closing thing. This is the heart of it. Just as God called them, stay where you planted. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches this is something I lay down as an apostle. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? In other words, was he a Jew when he was called? He should not become a Gentile. Not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised? Were you a Gentile when he was called? Don't become a Jew. And obviously he's using like, duh. But he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandments is what counts. uh, being filled with the Spirit, following uh, the teachings of Jesus is what he's talking about. Verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when 
God called them. Now he gives more examples common to their culture and used to be common in our culture. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Oh, you know, I'm a slave and God saved me and I can't do anything. I think we were just watching some, uh, a video of a man in prison uh, who is a believer. What happened? What do you do if you're in prison and you come to the Lord? Don't worry. Let the Lord use you where you are is the point, right? He goes, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. You don't, you know, if you, if you have a problem, an opportunity to get out of that, do that. For the one who was a slave when called is, uh, called to faith is, uh, sorry, in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. That's interesting. People can be in chains on this earth, but be free in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? But there are people walking around free who are in chains, spiritual chains. But he goes, similarly, the one who was free when called, you're Christ's slave. You're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You rule after him. And he ends here, he says, as you were bought with a price, do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible, as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were when God called them. And so this last section we'll get to next week. What, is, what has God called you to? Who has God called you to? Stay in it. A lot here trying to answer questions from a church. We obviously don't have slavery uh, here in our, in our country anymore, but what's the principle behind it? What's the principle? What are you saying? When you come to the Lord and you're in a difficult marriage, stay. Be a savoring influence. You are salt. You are light. Live for the gospel. Realize that you are the living gospel. You shine your light to people. Do that. Shine where you are, where God's planted you. In a difficult job, perhaps you're the only Christian there. Perhaps you're it. Perhaps you are the light and the salt that God has placed there in a very difficult environment. If you're single, and we'll talk about it, pray. It is better to be single, but if you don't have that gift, you've, you've not sinned if you get married to a, someone in the Lord if you're a Christian. Got to have it in the Lord. We'll talk about that, so read ahead. Don't make life decisions based upon just what I've said. Read ahead, please. <laughs> Amen? Amen? God is desiring us to be holy, set apart, living in this world, but how do we live? I live to glorify Jesus. You live to glorify Jesus. And so ask him, Lord, does this please you? Is this what brings you glory in all circumstances from your bedroom to the workplace to wherever you are? Amen? Lord, we lift up this kind of, um, this passage is touching on things that are very relevant to our culture. And Lord, I, I know it's, it's flowing upstream compared to the downpour of filth and brokenness and uh, disregard for design and creator that our culture and our nation is just embraced wholeheartedly. I pray that we would be willing to step out into that stream and be godly people and say, my body is, is for you, Lord. And no matter what the culture puts at us, no matter what definitions, no matter what the Supreme Court says, you overrule. You are King of kings, Lord of lords. And you're calling people to repent, 
to turn from their sin, from their brokenness, and to receive forgiveness and to receive the fullness of your spirit and the power over sin and the victory. So I pray as the church, Lord, we would be embracing that, we would be a holy people, and that whatever things that we're reading about that seem contrary to what our lives are, Lord, that we would submit to you in our hearts, and you change us, you teach us as your kids, as your disciples. And so we ask all this in the name of Jesus, amen.